You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. It's been said that it's not books that change you, but sentences in books that change you. It's not the whole soup of 50,000 words that make the impact, but the carefully crafted line of 24 words with a sharp end. And the more of these lines there are in one book, then the more memorable the book, the, the more impact it affects. And so this morning, I've got a sentence for you from a book full of sentences like it, written by an author who did not make the best sellers list from the past decade. Okay, so he, here it is. He, here's the quote. He writes, I have often said that the sole cause of man's unhappiness is that he does not know how to stay quietly in his room. I have often said that the sole cause of man's unhappiness is that he does not know how to stay quietly in his room. So the writer writes this sentence as a lament to the busyness that surrounds him. Everyone is hurried, preoccupied, and distracted. They fill their lives with stuff and then give the rest of their time in pursuit of the ability to acquire more stuff. Most of their energy is given to the attainment of things they do not yet have rather than the enjoyment of things they already have. And this is an epidemic, this writer says. There is something wrong with us that we cannot be quiet in our rooms. In another sentence, he writes, our nature consists in movement. Absolute rest is death. So we only do more to get more to have more under the illusion that with just a little bit more, we can finally relax. But we don't really want to relax because the thought of staying in our rooms quietly sounds like punishment. And when it's all said and done, we actually prefer the busyness we complain about. That's the conclusion of this writer as he observes the hurry and busyness that surrounds him in France in the 1650s. The writer is Blaise Pascal, a French Christian philosopher who wrote about the problem of busyness and hurry and distraction 370 years ago, which is a long time before the iPhone or any kind of phone or electricity or a thousand other things that we think we cannot live without. I mean, can you imagine for a minute what the 1650s looked like? And if Pascal observed unnecessary busyness in that day, could you imagine what he would think if he lived one day in our world? Because in our world, 
in America in 2019, almost 2020, everybody is busy. And why is that? Why doesn't anybody have any time today? Where did all the time go? (laughs) Have you ever wondered about that? Because it doesn't really make sense. Pretty much every technological advancement over the past hundred years has included time efficiency as a main ingredient. We are always inventing and using more hacks to save us time while we simultaneously have less time. We spend more and more time and energy doing things meant to save us time and energy. This this is the great conundrum of modern life. One one present-day philosopher says it like this, quote, we ought to have much more time, more leisure, than our ancestors did because technology, which is, which is the most obvious and radical difference between their lives and ours, is essentially a series of time-saving devices. Your great-great-grandmother scrubbed clothes on a scrubbing board and cooked on a coal stove. You push buttons on washing machines and microwave ovens full of prepared food. Yet your great-great-grandmother had more time to talk to her daughter than you do. Why? And I should mention, that quote was written in 1992, which is still a long time before smartphones, which of course are the ultimate time-saving devices and which we check on average 85 times a day. Another study says that the average smartphone user touches their phone 2,617 times a day. And to be honest with you, I don't know the difference between checking your phone and touching your phone, okay? (laughs) But the point is that we use our phones a lot. Or maybe they're using us. One study found that the average millennial, which is a few of us in here, The average millennial spends five hours a day on our phones. These phones that are supposed to be saving us so much time. The truth is, here in America, at the brink of the year 2020, we are the busiest, most hurried, distracted people in human history. And it is a spiritual problem. It's a spiritual problem. One writer has said, hurry is a form of violence to the soul. Because we cannot crowd our lives without crowding our hearts. Which means if we're honest, the space in our hearts is as jam-packed as the end of Luke chapter 2 verse 7. We've got no room for a king. Jesus as a newborn was laid in a manger. And we all know this is an important part of the Christmas story. Now, a manger, of course, is another word for a trough. Okay, so just to be clear, we're talking about a bowl that holds animal food. 
Okay, this is the sort of thing that is found in stables and barns with all the sights and smells that come with stables and barns. Jesus was born there and wrapped in swaddling cloths there and laid in a manger there because there was the place where mangers were. We know this part of the story. Luke mentions the manger three times in chapter two. But don't forget the little detail in verse 7 that explains why the manger is part of this story. The only reason Jesus was born in a stable and laid in a manger is because there was no place for him in the inn. This means that there was a moment before verse 7 that was the first moment of countless repeated moments to follow when Jesus came somewhere that did not receive him. Can you imagine what this would have been like? For whatever reason, I can sort of see how this whole thing unfolded. I think it's because uh, of a Bible cartoon my parents showed us when we were kids. Um, I actually had to reread very closely the birth narratives in Matthew and Luke just to double check that this is my imagination because I just, I just see this so vividly from the cartoon. Okay, So just so you know, this, this is not in the Bible, what I'm about to say. This is imaginative. But we can sort of see it, right? We, we can see it. Joseph and Mary are in Bethlehem, like verse 4 says, and Mary is having contractions, like verse 5 implies. And we can see it. We can see Joseph walking up to the end, something like the, the Bethlehem La Quinta. And he, he, of course, he ignores, he ignores the neon no vacancy sign because he has to. He's running out of options here. So maybe someone has already checked out or maybe the sign was turned on by accident. I mean, he's got to try, right? He's got to try. And so Joseph walks into the front office and he asks if they have a room, just a little room, even, even a smoking room. But the man in the front office behind the counter shakes his head because the sign is true. Literally, they do not have room. They don't have room. And what a moment that must have been. We can be guaranteed that the enemy is taking notes here. The enemy has been trying to rid the world of this coming son for centuries. The enemy was willing to do whatever he could to defeat this son. He has even turned kings against all sons in lethal rage, rage against all newborns and preborns and anyone who stood in his way. Even in the moment of Joseph approaching the counter of this front office, the enemy has been working on Herod by feeding his insecurity but now in this moment all attention is on Joseph at this motel at this front office his elbows resting on the counter talking to the man behind the counter who had his name tag clipped a little crooked on his two-button shirt and as that man shook his head the devil wrote it down because the man who was shaking his head wasn't saying no to Jesus. He was just saying he didn't have room. And that sounds like the start of this epidemic we still suffer from today. Busy Bethlehem did not have room for Jesus and the devil wrote it down. 
Because the devil doesn't need people to say no to Jesus as long as they're too busy for him. As long as they're too crowded. As long as their hearts are jam-packed with other things. So the devil wrote this down. And even better, he must have thought, if he can make people think they're actually saying yes to Jesus when they give him a place in the stable and not a seat on the throne. We don't know how, Jesus, how, how Joseph found the stable. We don't know. In in my memory of this Bible cartoon, it was the innkeeper who tipped him off. Right? But we don't know. I mean, Joseph could have walked away from this motel without a plan. He, he, maybe he didn't know what he was going to do. But as Mary's contractions grew worse, he became more desperate. And you have to think, if you're Joseph, you have to think that he expected God to come through here, right? I mean, this is a special child for crying out loud. So maybe just down the street a little more, there's another motel. Or, or maybe around the corner, there's a mansion. How in the world did he wind up in a stable? Well, it's because Mary is in pain. And there's nowhere else to go because this little town of Bethlehem is hopping thanks to Caesar Augustus. And well, over here is a stable and in the stable there's a manger because a stable was the place where mangers were. And so that's where Jesus entered the world because there was no place for them in the end. And how many times has this happened since? You don't have to say no if you say not here. You, you could even pretend you're saying yes if you say yes but not here. What a tactic. Of course the devil wrote this down because who can blame the person who says sorry but all the places uh, of my heart are filled but I hear there's a stable round back. Who can blame this? That's not a bad guy. That's just a simple no vacancy sign. Like the Bethlehem La Quinta, so is our hearts. We've got no room for a king. And here's the terrible irony of our condition. This is the current landscape of human sinfulness. It's not just that our world has fallen, but it's that it's so fallen, we've backpedaled and misstepped our way into being too busy for salvation. And, and the busyness is actually a diversion from our need. The main problem of our busyness is that it disguises our main problem. And that is the problem of despair. We are a people who walk in darkness, who dwell in the land of deep darkness. And that darkness is sin and death. And sin and death is like a rhinoceros in our living rooms, as one writer puts it. Okay? Do this for a minute. Imagine your living room for a minute. Okay? Everyone get this picture in your heads. Imagine your living room. Can you see it? Imagine your living room. Now imagine a rhinoceros in your living room. Like, 
standing square in the middle of your living room. You have to walk around the rhinoceros to sit on your couch, and it's there every single day. You wake up in the morning to the rhinoceros in your living room. At night, you lock the doors and turn off the lights, and it's still there. The rhinoceros is in your living room, and this rhinoceros represents the reality of sin and death. And you can't really live unless you ignore the rhinoceros. But it's hard to ignore the rhinoceros because it's in your living room. So maybe you try to hide it. But how in the world do you hide a rhinoceros in your living room? How do you hide a rhinoceros in your living room? Maybe by covering your living room with a million mice. Now you can't see the rhinoceros, and of course it's still there. And also, now you have mice. This is the reality of modern life. We actually want to be hurried and busy. We want the distractions. We want the crowded calendar. We want the never-ending to-do list because we're too tired and afraid to have nothing to do. We cannot stay quietly in our rooms because that means we'll have to think. And that means thinking about the rhinoceros. And technically, we can't ever stop thinking. We can only stop thinking about one thing by thinking about another. And we would all rather think about mice. Pascal said that the happiest people in the world are the least distracted because they have less misery from which to distract themselves. And if that's true, what does it mean when our entire society is distracted? Are we that miserable? Are we so sad that we have to stay so busy? The answer is yes, we are. We dwell in a land of deep darkness. Our problem is despair. We've got no room for a king. The truth is, Jesus came to save a people too busy for him. And maybe that is the darkest corner of our depravity. Our grossest wickedness is our indifference. It's that we're content. We're content to keep Jesus round back in the stable because we told him we didn't have room. And quite frankly, we don't care. He'll be fine. How in the world does Jesus save a people like that? That's the question, right? How in the world does Jesus save people like us? The answer is grace. Grace is the only thing that could lead Jesus to come to a people who don't deserve him. What else could it be? We could call it love because love is the heart of God that has always been there. But grace is the word we use for love in action. 
Grace is love in contrast to the condition of its recipients. Grace is Jesus being laid in a manger. Nobody had room for him. But he came anyway. We told him we were full. But he took the stable. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, humbling himself to the point of death, even death on a cross that started in a manger. When writer puts it, we weren't expecting We weren't interested, we weren't involved, we didn't ask, we didn't deserve, we didn't help, we didn't even imagine, and yet, to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and born in a manger of all places. This is grace, this is grace. And this is grace that runs deep, starting back before the foundations of the world when God the Father chose us in Jesus. Even before creation, God predestined us for adoption as his sons and daughters, brothers and sisters of Jesus, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. See, Jesus took the stable and he endured the cross, despising the shame because of the joy that was set before him. It's because Jesus knew As he would later say to Paul, I have many in this city who are my people. Jesus entered a world of darkness, all sin and crowded hearts. But he knew, he knew that there would be some from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation who would be born again to open wide their hearts and give him the place for which he came. Not the place he came, the place for which he came. We don't point him to the stable anymore. Now we surrender to him the throne of our hearts Jesus, who was first laid in a manger and then crucified on a cross, is now highly exalted, risen from the dead, and seated at the right hand of the Father so that we, the busiest, most distracted people ever, would prepare him room. Grace makes us make room for the king. One writer puts it, If Jesus is king, everything, quite literally, everything and everyone has to be reimagined, reconfigured, reoriented to a way of life that consists in an obedience following of Jesus. This means that Jesus doesn't rule from the periphery of our lives. He doesn't. He rules from the very center of our lives because Jesus who is king over all is Jesus who has come and he has come now to rule in our hearts. But one day he will come again to take his seat on the throne of this earth, which will be a new earth in the city of Jerusalem, which will be a new Jerusalem. 
the real Jesus who has come will come again. And he is coming to not just reign spiritually, but to reign physically, visibly, when his will is done on earth as it is in heaven, because earth will be like heaven forever. That's grace. That is grace. And so what do you do with that? What do you do with this grace? You preach it. You go tell it on the mountain. You can't sell it because it can't be bought. You can't suggest it because it's not advice. This is the news of what Jesus has done. So we preach and we tell and we sing as a proclamation. This is a matter of fact. Jesus Christ has come. (laughs) He came. And so receive him. Prepare him room. Sing. Joy to the world. What a song. A song of declaration. Joy to the world. The Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. And heaven and nature sing. And heaven and nature sing. And heaven, heaven, heaven. And nature sing. Those are exhortations brought to us by grace and empowered in us by grace. Church, receive him. Prepare him room and sing. That's what we do at this table every week. Jesus has told us to remember his death for us at this table by eating, eating this bread and by drinking this cup, which symbolizes his broken body and shed blood. And each week, as we come to this table, Jesus invites us. This is an invitation. He invites us to freshly yield to him the throne of our hearts, a fresh surrender, a fresh bowing, a fresh adoration at this table We are invited to once again receive him. At this table, we are invited to once again prepare him room. At this table, we are invited once again to sing. And to sing as we look forward to the day of his return. And so if you would do that this morning, if if you would receive him, If you would prepare him room, if you would sing to him this morning, we invite you to this table. If Jesus is your king, if you put your faith in him, we invite you now to come eat and drink with us. His body is the true bread. Let us serve you.